it's been concerning. I didn't think people were going to be as concerned as they were uh, after calling all of them the last six hours. So I don't know. I, I kind of want to – actually, it was funny because Serge and I were talking organizing stuff, and I go, shit, Bill's coming on. I'm just going to ask him. Um, what do you think generally about mobilizing? In other words, we were hoping that some of the progressive churches and unions would have called it, but they haven't called anything. So, you know, local DSA, local community groups decided, hey, we should at least mobilize, get people out in the community. Um, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that, Bill? Well, part of what's been happening, Vince, is that ever since the 6th, uh, there's been a current in different sectors that says um, this is a dangerous time to mobilize, um, that the combination of COVID-19 and uh, that these fascists may start targeting people of color uh, means that there needs to be a lot of caution. And, and, and people mean different things by caution. Um, I, I was called by a, uh, a union president, local union president, that I've done a lot of work with. And, uh, and she asked me, what did I think? And I said, I think that we have to be mobilizing. And that um, in, in her case, uh, this was in Washington State, the, the governor had uh, mobilized the National Guard. And I said, well, one of the things that I think you should do is reach out to the governor and ask, well, what kind of support do you need? Um, and, and uh, you know, so people should stay out of a situation that might become a free fire zone. And so as such, I'm not proposing that people do counter demonstrations in the same geographic space, um, because that could become a problem. And some people have raised that tactically, uh, what that could mean is that, um, centrist or center forces might look at this as sort of a gang fight and say, you know, ah, a plague on both houses. So, um, so I think it's important to have visibility, have an alternative site for this, um, but also have a lot of uh, media visibility, you know, radio, TV, web, um, we need to be getting our echo chambers together. So mobilization, yes. Man, that looks better than whatever the hell I have over here. <laughs> what you got over Jack there, Bill? Da Jack Daniels. Right on, right on, man. Huh? <laughs> I, um, you know, Serge reached out to the local police chief and said the exact same thing. No one else had reached out to him, and Sergio, you know, uh, thought it would be a good idea to reach out to to Dion Campbell, who's uh, our police chief. He's an older black dude who's got a lot of respect in the community. People love him. He used to be a school liaison. He knows a lot of kids in the city. Um, and, you know, I think having that open dialogue with him has been helpful. Now, I'm sure some of our friends on the left probably wouldn't appreciate that we've been. We should talk about this. Yeah. On air, because are we recording now? We can. Yeah, let's. Yeah. Oh, you had it going? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so I'm glad I didn't say MF. Um, so, so um, 
No, because there's a few things that, uh, about this that are very interesting. So um, one thing is the question of defund the police and abolish the police, right? Because it's, it's been, it's been um, almost funny that in the aftermath of January 6th, a number of people have written, and you see a lot of this on Facebook, what does all this mean about defund the police, the demand to defund the police? And my response has been, well, you know, leaving aside, I don't use that slogan. Um, this is a kind of curious time because some people on the left are saying, well, this proves, you know, particularly the uh, infiltration of the, the police, apparent infiltration uh, by the right proves that they need to be defunded. And I've said, well, the last time I checked, we don't have a people's militia. Now, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I've missed something. I missed that memo, but there's no people's militia. So the question is, in the, who, who was going to fight the fascists on the Capitol, right? And yes, there obviously was infiltration, but what we now know is that there were cops that were fighting these fascists. One died. Um, we don't know about the other one that died as a result of a suicide, in terms of what that was all about, uh, apparent suicide. And, um, and, and people were being injured. So we know that there was conflict. So what do you say about that? And, and my attitude is that the left needs to be pushing the government to, to crush the fascists, to, to make use of every legal means to put these people away forever. And there also need to be uh, very strong measures taken against the, the collaborators in Congress. Uh, and, and so I think that this idea that somehow what we saw vindicates the slogan defund the police is actually delusional. Um, and, I, and I hate to use that term because I know people have good intents, but what did you, what do you think is gonna happen? You know, what about uh, mobilizing the National Guard? Uh, should we basically be agnostic about that? And it's an interesting um, element from history in terms of what happened in the international communist movement in the mid to late 1920s as fascism was growing and when they adopted this really ultra left line that equated the social democrats and the liberals with the fascists and basically said a plague on both houses this was a disaster they they completely missed what was going on at least in europe they completely missed what was going on and i think that there's folks on the left that are doing that now, one other thing, I'm going to shut up then after that, Vince. There, there was this article in Jacobin last week that basically said um, the right was defeated, and now we can get back to fighting with the neoliberal centrist Democrats. And I, I looked at that, and I'm saying, now, what alternative universe are they operating in? You know, as a science fiction person, that's what I want to know. They obviously are not in our universe. 
So what are they in? I mean, how could they draw that conclusion? Yes, they may have been defeated on January 6th, but when you look at all of this traffic that, that intelligence organizations are talking about, we have no idea what's upcoming. It could be nothing. It could be a lot of selling wolf tickets. It could be a lot of rogue operations. We don't know, but the idea that we can turn our attention away from the right-wing populists and fascists and go back to kicking Biden's ass? No, and we're going to be we're going to need to be very sophisticated because in my opinion the first 2 to 4 years of Biden's administration could look a lot like the Clinton years on steroids, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City and onward. That's right. And I think people really need to wake up to what that is. I had sent you a a recommendation. I think it's the best book on the white power movement since Vietnam by Kathleen Ballou. And look, I'll back up a little bit. I don't think you know this about me, but I'll tell you. Um, you know, my brother used to be uh, security personnel with Capitol Hill Police. He just finished a diplomatic security and sec secret service uh, training course. He's now on the security detail for Mike Pompeo. So he's got, you know, he's been there. He's been there for years. This is someone who's devoted his life as a liberal guy, has devoted his life to the state project, you know, to this mm -hmm. this project. And after speaking with him, two things became very clear. One, which was Sergio's and I, Sergio and I's assumption from having tactical training that if there would have been a company size element of 200 guys, well-trained, well-armed with blueprints to that building and knew exactly what they were doing in a way that was much more organized than what we saw, this could have been, this could have been so much worse than what most, I think, civilians understand. In other words, mm -hmm. if you talk to somebody like my brother, he'll tell you, where I think a lot of civilians assume there would be a protocol for something like that. There is no protocol for people taking over Capitol Hill, executing the Democrats, and then setting up some provisional government. There's no, oh, hey, guys, this is what we do, step one, step two, step three. That doesn't exist. Um, that's one. Two, what worries me from speaking with him, because of the last 10 months of politics and now the last week, what I'm starting to hear him say uh, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, but what, I, what I'm worried about is that entities within the state are starting to see themselves as like separate from this side and separate from that side. Who's looking out for us? And if they can, you know, mold that into a political force, that to me is also scary, uh, that we don't need an independent force of like the, the militarized arm of the state to see itself as separate from this party separate from that party nobody's got our back so we got to have each other's back that to me is also a potentially scary development yeah um a kind of bonapartist uh option uh, where there's stalemate politically and an individual or an organization in this case the military enters in well, I think that that's obviously a danger, but I think that um, the Joint Chiefs statement this week was actually a very good thing. And there were a number of people on uh, in social media that were saying that that worried them that the Joint Chiefs had to say that. And I said, frankly, it didn't worry me at all. I thought it was exactly what they needed to say and that the country needed to hear it. It wasn't just, I, that message was not just to troops. That was a message to the country. Yep. 
that if you mess around, you're going to be dealing with us, meaning the military. And that's something that I think that these fascists are going to have to think about very carefully. I mean, I know that they have their turn of diary dreams, but the reality of carrying out a protracted guerrilla war of some sort, it's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, and I don't mean that obviously in a good way. Yeah. So, so I think that the Joint Chiefs did exactly the right thing. Um, and I think that we on the left need to be pressing all arms of the state to crush the fascists. And, and with a basic notion that there is no middle ground with the fascists. There, there really isn't. There's no... I, I was I was using uh, the analogy earlier of um, having gangrene, and when you hear these liberals talking about well we've got to heal, well if you have gangrene, you can't just like wrap up that part of the body and expect that it's going to heal. That that's just not the way it works, and that's the situation that we're in now. That gangrene is in the system. It's not like a threat. It's not just like a possibility. Gangrene is there. So the question is now, what do we do? And that's where I think that demands have to be on the state. And that's why the notion of defund the police and, and abolish the police, even if it was correct, which I'm not acknowledging, because I, I just disagreed with the slogan because I felt like it was missing the explanation to masses of people as to what needed to happen. It, it's completely inappropriate now and that we need to be talking about specifically what we need from the state. Um, now, there will be certain people, you know, and I'll put money on this, Vince, that will bait me and say, ah, so Fletcher's saying we should join hands with the FBI. Well, I I'm saying that I want the fascists crushed and I actually don't care who does it, right? Um, I don't think that this is one of those moments when, you know, you treat this as some sort of abstract question. Um, and when you mentioned before about the Clinton era, what's one of the things that's useful about that uh, reference is precisely that the Democrats in that moment, instead of pressing the issue of We've got to go after these so-called militia people, i.e. we've got to go after these fascists. They were too quick to stand down. And they allowed the Republican Party to basically buffalo them. And, uh, and while some of the militia groups did stand down, um, there wasn't enough. They, they needed to be crushed. And I just listened to an interesting interview with... Uh... <clears throat> A gentleman who's a journalist who's been following the mafia and different uh, militarized groups in the United States, so drug cartels, mafia, white power groups. He was also mentioning that the whole post-9-11 posture of the FBI really screwed up a lot of the investigations they were doing. So at the time, all of this money and research after crushing the mafia, the Italian mafia, after crushing, uh, I mean, both in Chicago and in New York, uh, but then also going after the white power movement that after 9-11, all of those resources, all of their capacity shifted to Arabs and Muslims. Since right. then, the point he was making is that both the, 
the Italian mafia, not nearly as interesting or as important in this context, but also these white power groups have regained power and have a footing in a way that they haven't had in quite some time. And that's because they've been flying under the radar for 20 years. Now he made the point that that was both intentional. In other words, there are people within the ranks who are sympathetic towards it, but he may, he said, that's only a small part. He's like, that's only a very small part. He's like, what you're really looking at is like this bureaucratic incompetence and then an ideological shift towards, you know, trying to find uh, Muslim terrorists. Not to mention uh, letting the Russian mafia off the hook. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's right. I, I think that um, the ideological issue is very, very important because you remember, I'm sure, uh, when during the Obama administration, DHS came out with that report about the danger from right-wing terrorists. And uh, John Boehner, who at that point was the Speaker of the House, and other Republicans denounced it and said that it was attack on conservatives. And the, the Obama administration, true to form, backed down, right, and got rid of the report, as opposed to basically making the argument publicly that no, no, this is this is not like about going after conservatives. Ever since 9-11, we have seen that kind of shift that your, your, your colleague mentioned. And we've seen this, and, and it dovetails with a white racist analysis of the threats to the United States. So, um, so you can't possibly be worried about a white mob attacking the Capitol. I mean, that's, it's not gonna happen at least in their minds. Um, it can't be that these white fascists are a danger in the same way that Al-Qaeda is. And, and, and the irony is that most of the intelligence organizations have been repeatedly pointing out that the greater danger <clears throat> has been from these right-wing terror organizations. I mean, going back, my brother Al Qaeda doesn't hold a hand, uh, doesn't hold a candle to them. No, no, hundred percent, Bill. And and my brother referred to them in in sort of typical language as a clear and present danger, and that was six days ago. Now I'm hearing the uh, news commentators use the same language, and it's not surprising. I mean, in fact, the mainstream news has been, I think, pretty decent on this. I was, they I've have. been, I've been really surprised at how. I, for the first time in a while, I've been watching a lot of MSNBC and CNN, and I've been really impressed with a lot of people they've had on, and I've been really impressed with the conversation. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I've actually been impressed with uh, Biden, to tell you the truth. I was really surprised after the coup attempt that Biden was not only willing to call it an insurrection, although I'd call it a coup attempt, um, but also that he pointed out the racial aspect of this and what would have happened had that been Black Lives Matter or Latino, Latinas standing there, right? Um, But the other thing is uh, on MSNBC, they have a a commentator whose name I can't remember, an African-American guy who's a security person. I think his name is Vance or something. Oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. He yeah, is you know what I'm sh- he's as sharp as it gets. Isn't he? Oh, sharp yeah. as a tack. Oh, yeah. So the, the other night he was talking, and he basically said, 
we're entering a period of an insurgency. And uh, it's no longer a threat, it's there. And that there will be essentially an underground and an above ground. And he laid out, he, he wasn't trying to panic people. That was the thing that I was very impressed with. He was basically saying, these can be dealt with, right? These are the things that he was laying things out. The above ground issue, uh, and this is where an analysis of the complications with the Republican Party becomes very important. Um, because you've had in the Republican Party people that are collaborators with the fascists. Then you have people that are conciliating the fascists. Um, and then you have people that are in varying degrees of opposition. Um, and, and I think that politically, we're going to have to make some distinctions because part of what we have to do is drive some wedges. You know, on, on, the, on the 6th, right after you and I had to sign off, I was listening to uh, McCarthy, the, uh, the minority leader, House Minority Leader. And I've been telling people, you listen to the guy, the boy was scared to death. You listen to his voice. And even though later he went on to do this cowardly, unprincipled thing of standing uh, against the election results. When you listen to what he was saying and you listen to his voice, this guy was clearly not anticipating that this thing was going to go down and did not know what the ramifications were going to be. So people like him are in that kind of conciliator, opportunistic Dr. Frankenstein uh, pose. Man, Bill, you hit it. I was just going to use the, the Frankenstein uh comparison and the the point I was going to make is to me it reminds me a lot of I see Sergio shaking his head yes it reminds me of a domestic version of what we experienced in Iraq which is that we ended up funding and backing and playing with elements that we could at some point no longer control and to some degree I see this white power movement and these fascists as the same element domestically within the Republican Party they've created something that they can no longer control exactly exactly this, listen, man, this is this message is so, so important. And people have to understand, this started in 1968 when the Republican Party looked at the George Wallace campaigns of 64 and 68, and they saw the impact that Wallace was having with white voters in the South and the Southwest when Nixon created the so-called, or he didn't create it, he adopted um, the Southern strategy. From that point on, they have been assembling the monster. They've been taking dead body parts and putting them together, believing that they could build this monster that they could control. And many of us on the left, because we didn't have the right analysis of right-wing populism, thought of this as simply a, a kind of instrumentalist Thing. That is like a puppet, a puppeteer and a puppet. Uh, so, for example, when the um, Tea Party went down, you probably remember when people talked, they described it as an astroturf movement. And that was wrong. Yeah. It was wrong. Yes. And it, it led to the wrong strategy yeah. in response. Because if it was an astroturf movement, then that means that it would have no legs on its own. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the Tea Party was fundamentally the base upon which Trump won, ran, and won. Yep. 
I just did a talk the other day uh, on my Facebook Live trying to draw a line from coming home from Iraq and seeing unhinged, wild, white, conservative evangelicals under the Bush administration who are calling me a fucking traitor and a piece of shit and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, hey, whoa, I'm a combat vet. You know, I'm an infantryman. Like, I just got out of the Marine Corps. And these, these people look at me and say, hey, hey, son, I don't give a shit. You're a fucking traitor. End of story. That was the, right at that moment from 2006 to the, to the reaction to Obama to the Tea Party movement in 2010, to the lunacy after that, the response to Occupy in Wisconsin, right up to 2014 when they started booting Cantor and Boehner out of the party and they took the Senate, right through 2015 and Trump, where like now you're dealing with something, I know it goes well beyond that time, but in my personal experience, no, you're right. just watching this go further and further, it, you know, there. it's funny, Bill, because my dad didn't graduate high school old Italian cat who, you know, worked in the steel mills and an iron worker. When I ask him, I say, hey, Pops, what do you think? He's like, Vinny, there's no fucking talking to these people. Like, he right. gets it on such a visceral right. level coming from right. all of his former union guys from the iron workers. They're all right. voting for Trump. They send him QAnon shit. He'll send me the email. He'll go, hey, Vinny, you think there's talk? You think you're going to talk to Mike Dancula? Read this fucking email and you tell me you're going to talk to this guy. Right. What are you going to say to this guy? He goes, this guy thinks pedophiles are running the country and Nancy Pelosi drinks child's blood and that you're a traitor even though you serve tour tours. He's never served. You served. I had guys that never served calling me a traitor. That was when right. it was at that moment when I go, wait a minute, there's an irrationality to a huge section of this movement that if you think you're just going to get them with facts and a rational argument, empirical evidence, whatever, I think you're, I think you're crazy. Um, well, that's right. I agree with you. And I've gotten into arguments over the years when I've made that argument. You may remember that I've used this thing about zombies, right? I think that these folks are zombies. And, and that when you become a zombie, as you know from watching zombie movies, you don't become a human again, right? Yeah. And I think that that's basically the case with these folks. Um, it is really interesting to watch the way that this has evolved. And let me take you back to the 1970s. Um, did you ever read or know about a book called Chariots of the Gods? Yep. Okay. This was the whole thing that it wasn't Africans who developed their all of these right. wonderful artifacts. It was space aliens that came. That's down. right. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that your younger listeners may not know is the impact as a phenomenon, the chariots of the gods and other books by uh, this guy Von Deniken had. Um, it was good science fiction, right? But he was presenting it as fact. And, and it was really interesting because of the way that the, the subtle racism of it that was uh, sort of flowing from something that Du Bois had talked about in terms of the way that the myth of Atlantis had been used. And, and, and this, this idea that Africans, Asians, and indigenous people in the Americas could not possibly have come up with the advanced civilizations. Therefore, it had to be uh, aliens, right? So I remember, man, one of the pictures, because there were pictures in this book, and there were, uh, I think, the line, the Nazca lines from Peru. And, and the subtitle was something like, 
These are like runways. Okay, at one point, PBS did a documentary that demolished this. And they basically showed, first of all, that he misused photographs. Uh, and second, they, they talked about a phenomena that I have adopted, uh, the terminology I've adopted of irrationalism. Not irrationality, irrationalism. That you actually have an ideology that's framed in a certain way that is completely complete lunacy, but has a certain kind of logic, um, sophistry, it's known in philosophical terms. So, um, you know, like the example I always give of sophistry is um, sophistry is when something seems logical, but the premise is flawed. So an example I give is I, vampires are scared away from garlic. I eat plenty of garlic. I've never once had a problem with a vampire, right? And, and you know what I mean? And so it's like, but you, but you saw, you started to see the growth in the 1970s of this kind of irrationalism that then starts um, dovetailing with the rightly populist movement, right? And so now you have hundreds of thousands of people, apparently, that believe that lizard people have taken over the earth. Now, I know that that was a theme from certain science fiction movies. V, for example, and to some extent, uh, they live. But that's science fiction movies. But Vince, people are believing that. And so the question is, well, what do you say to them? And I think what's important is that um, progressive activists have to make a very cold tactical decision of where they spend their time. And there, there, are, there are gonna be moments when you encounter people who are confused. They're gonna say all kinds of things. And any good organizer knows that. There's other times when you encounter people who are really, they're completely in a different place. And facts are irrelevant because they believe that they know the facts. That's it, you know? I think one of the things you brought up, I want to swing back because I think this is all tied up to, you know, can the left prove itself to be a credible entity in the eyes of most ordinary people? You know, when people mm -hmm. in our area build to bring it back to the policing issue and defund the police, in our area, it was a non-issue because our police have been defunded in Gary, Indiana, in Michigan City, in South Bend, in Hammond, in East Chicago. For the last 45 years, they've been defunded. There is nothing to work with at our city budget. So the problem when these types of slogans come from on down from the top down, when they filter to a place as localized as, say, northwest Indiana and these small Rust Belt towns, they have no resonance because they're, they are not in our material reality. We have no city budget right. to, to mess around with, particularly after the last 10 months. Now we're at a mm -hmm. point where we're starting to fire police officers, cut back on city services, lay off city workers. That's the position we're in financially. So even the more reasonable of the two, you know, abolish the police. That was what the fuck. I think it's pulling at 10% with, with uh, uh, black Americans right now. 10%. Right. Um, yeah. That, and in our area, it might be 2%. Like most people here were like, what the fuck are you talking about? 
defund in some areas I can understand. In Chicago, they have a significant police budget that can be moved around and used for social services. They got millions that they spend just on surveillance and armored cars and all this shit that they don't need. That's a way different story than places like this. So the problem I've also seen over the last 10 months, like the geographical difference of where we're at and our political context here in Northwest Indiana, even compared to a 50-minute drive to the West in Chicago, it's, it's night and day, man. So when people come That's down right. with these national movements and they say, hey, here's the slogan, here's the thing, we're running with this. But folks where we live, even though there's 33% of our city's black and a lot of people do have righteous beefs with the police, uh, it doesn't do us any good because that doesn't leave us with the kind of demands or politics that can resonate with ordinary people where we live. No, no, that's right. And let me just add to that. There's a semantical issue. Defund means removing funding. It doesn't mean reallocating. So one of the things I've said is we've got to demilitarize the police. We have to reallocate funding what social programs, right? So, because when regular people hear defund, they think that means you're taking all the money away from the cops, right? And this becomes a real problem, particularly in the kind of moment that we're in right now, when you get these fascists and the question is, well, where's the people's militia? Well, it doesn't exist, so what the hell do we do, right? Um, but the other thing is that this is a moment when we have to be demanding accountability from government. This is a moment when we actually do need to be talking about taxes and, and funding government. When, when one of the things that, um, when McConnell earlier this year, uh, well, in 2020, was refusing to give money to states, counties, and municipalities, it was objectively genocidal. He was basically saying, we're going to let these so-called blue regions die. And, and we have to be the ones that say, no, no, no. We, we need these areas funded. Now, we should demand, you know, in terms of how the funding should go. But we also need to be putting demands further forward uh, in terms of taxing and who gets taxed and how the money gets reallocated. This needs to be part of what we're doing. Um, the... Uh, I think, again, to applaud something that Biden's doing, and I'm not exactly in his amen corner, but um, coming out and saying, you know, $1 trillion. Yes, unapologetically. Uh, we need that, and we need to focus on this uh, pandemic, and we need to focus on the economy. And I think that that's the right message, and we on the left need to be supporting that, we need to be pushing it, um, and we need to be embarrassing the hell out of Republicans, particularly that are um, calling back for austerity. I see this as a great opportunity. To, you mentioned it earlier, and I've been saying it throughout the week just to get a sense of what people are thinking on social media. And I'm like, hey, man, and even the organizers we've been talking to, right now is the time to fracture this Republican Party as best we yes. can. There are so many people... I just spoke two nights ago with the former head of the Porter County Republican Party, which is the county next to ours. He's mm -hmm. never reached out to me once in 15 years that he knows I've been living here. He just called me two nights ago. You know, those are the types of conversations I'm interested in having, not because I'm, That's right. you know, uh, playing nice with the guy or whatever, but I see a real opportunity where he's going, hey, man, 
I don't want to be with the Frankenstein zombies. We can't control them. I want nothing to do with them. And he's another guy, Bill, who in 2010 right away saw, and he, to his credit, in Porter County in 2010, he actively destroyed the Tea Party movement to make sure that it didn't take over the Republican Party in Porter County. And I got to give him credit for that. We're all probably benefit from him doing that. Another thing I'll say in 2010 is, man, I was really frustrated with cats. I don't need to name them. Um, but there are some folks on the left who, in 2010, 2011, 2012, portrayed it as this astroturf thing, writing from wherever they're writing from. And I remember sitting in northwest Indiana going, hey, man, the 200 guys I just saw at the courthouse, they ain't getting paid by the fucking Koch brothers, man. That's they right. came out on their own accord with their own money and resources because this message uh, resonates with them. Um, and oh, Absolutely. And it worried me then, and it, it, it's really, this time around, Bill, it's really starting to drive me nuts. And I think I made a mistake. I would say about a year ago, the first two or three years of Trump's administration, we were like, we got called to the police chief, the former police chief, who was an old white racist cat who called us into the office because he found a uh, flyer that we were giving out on the one year anniversary of Trump's inauguration. We had a big party here and like protest fundraiser for different campaigns that we had going on. And we had like Trump decapitated and there was like a confederate flag that was burning and the police chief called us in this older white guy he said hey you know guys i just want to make sure everything's okay and we started getting a lot of shit from our friends on the left and i think about a year ago you know so we're calling this motherfucker a fascist we're getting out there saying this stuff for the first couple years the guy's in office then i pulled back because i was getting a lot of shit from people just saying hey vince how about this how about this you know or this or this you i mean and i at the same time I should have just, I think, stuck to my guns on where I should have just hard, all the way hard, no compromise, no talking, let's shatter them, that's it. Um, and some of it is just like listening to people like my pops or my friend Big Dave who has just stopped by uh, outside, you know, safely. But he, uh, here's an unemployed cat, 48 years old, white dude, lives in LaPorte County, and he's been, him and my dad have been telling me for four years, they're like, there ain't no talking to these people. They need to be crushed. They, and this like, there's a certain amount of like street smarts that these white cats have who aren't bought into this bullshit. That's right. Where they look right. at their friends and family and they go, hey, Vince, I can't even talk to my own fucking brother. You're telling me you're going to go organize him? You're crazy. Well, you know, this is interesting because it uh, makes me think about a discussion I had yesterday with some trade unionists. And... Um, the problem, part of the problem in the union movement is that we're paying the price now for the failure to have real discussions about race, about gender, about right-wing populism. So now there's a segment of the union membership, a minority, but it's an important one, that is um, pro-right-wing. Um, not just voting Republican, but pro-Trump. And the people, many, many leaders I was talking to at a local level don't know what to do. And they're, they're really afraid of like losing these people. Now, my feeling is that you do the best you can if you have these folks in your ranks um, to lead an organization to do the right thing. But you have to realize at a certain point that there are going to be big divisions. In the 1950s, the labor movement in the South 
was completely shaken after the Brown versus Board of Education decision and with the efforts of desegregation because the labor movement in the South had very active racist elements and anti-racist elements. And the reality was that these could not coexist. And there were splits. And I don't know that you can do much about that when you reach a certain boiling point. Um, you know, you keep hoping that people will come back to reality. My experience is that that only happens if, uh, when, when they're really that far gone, when there's some sort of paradigm crisis, when something really big happens. And even what we're looking at now, I, I started wondering when Trump on the 6th told people, let's march down to the Capitol. And then he himself did not go. And then later offered these ambiguous statements and then eventually said no violence, right? I wondered how that was going to have, what kind of impact that was going to have on his base. And what I saw were two, two things. One were a set of people that said, the hell with Trump. And then there were others that just simply ignored it. Um, and I, I don't know how you win these people over. The latest polls I saw range from 18% to 33% of the Republican Party supports what happened on Wednesday. Now, if you take the 75 million people or 74 million who voted for him, 33% turns into a big damn number. That's 25 million people in this country who were down mm -hmm. with what happened last Wednesday. This ain't like, you know, so when, they, when people start yeah. talking about this within the party, I think to myself, yeah, they're going, ah, it's only 20 30% who agrees with what happened on Wednesday. Man, you're talking tens of millions of people if that's what we're talking about. You are, but, but let me just caution you. Roughly 25% of the electorate right. is the, thoroughly reactionary yeah. and consistently. Yeah. So, um, so I think this, one of the things that that means to me is this. We on the progressive side have to act like the majority. And, uh, and that means, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. In the aftermath of the election, what, one of the things that was really driving me crazy was you had all of these Democrats that were saying, well, the election was close. And it's like, so what? I mean, Trump, lost the 2016 election by the, the, uh, the popular vote, yet went on to claim that he had a mandate. So what, what the hell are you whining about? Biden won the electoral vote and the popular vote and did quite well with the popular vote. I mean, the United States has been divided for a long time. And see, this is the other thing, and I hope in the people that you're talking with on your show that folks get this. This country has been divided for a very, very long time. We have a lot of myths about national unity. And um, I, I was trying to explain to someone yesterday who was like totally freaking out. It was almost like battle fatigue, right? Um, and he was totally freaking out and say, oh my God, the, the country is so divided. 
Well, the country has been divided many times. You know, we had something called the Civil War, right? And, and we've had Jim Crow segregation in the South, de facto Jim Crow segregation in the Southwest. We've had this experience of a very divided country. And I, I feel like people are losing their bearings in part because they're not remembering history, or in some cases, just may not know history and not recognize how deep the divisions have been for a very long time. Well, thinking about policing the military, and you mentioned uh, Little Rock. Hey, man, who went down to Little Rock to make sure that those kids can go into those that damn school? That's right. It was exactly. It was the national. It was, well, it was 101st with the National Guard. Right. Yeah. And, and who did not go into Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898, when white supremacists carried out an armed insurrection against a democratically elected governor? Right. I mean. You know, a lot of people don't know about that insurrection, but it was a democratically elected populist administration that was militarily overthrown by a white supremacist coup where people were killed, driven out of town, et cetera. And the state of North Carolina and the U.S. government did nothing. Now, would we as progressives have sat back and said, you know, our position is that it was the repressive apparatus of the state. We're not taking a position on this. Hell no. We would have won. I think we would have wanted U.S. troops to have gone in there and kicked the ass of those white supremacists. Yep. You know, you can't have it both ways. And, and this kind of agnosticism is infantile. It's upsetting to me because, look, man, the left that I'm interested in being a part of is a left that actually wants to run a country a left that mm-hmm. actually wants to run a society, that wants to run right. a political economy, that wants to develop international agreements and relations and treaties. And, you know, I, man, I, I have to be honest with you, Bill, and I'm, I'm just kind of going off here, but I, uh, I've been really surprised, shocked, and disappointed over the last nine days. I've been, the reaction from some of our friends on the left to what happened on Wednesday, um, even if, you know, I cut people some slack, man. If you went into it ignorant, that's one thing. But when stuff like that happens, it's time to snap out of it. And if that right. means that you went into it, you know, thinking this or that, shit changes quickly. And your thinking, your politics, your posture, I think, has to change with the times. It doesn't mean you don't remain true to your principles or your values. It just means, hey, what it, you know, what's your position? And are we serious about actually taking over this government? running the state apparatus, like, is that what we want to do? Are we just interested in kind of being on the outside, giving these nice critiques on social media, giving all this kind of like, the way I look at it, man, we're in a war right now. We're in a fight. Pick the side and let's go, man. It's not time for like, is it right that he punched him in the face or not? They're punching your buddy in the face. That's what they're doing. They're punching your friend Mm. in the face. Now your choice is you either sit at the bar and keep having cocktails and watch him and debate whether or not it's ethical to jump in or you jump in, and I don't know. I mean, I know that's like a simple, you know, sort of silly. No, no, I'm, I'm with you. Like silly example, but, you see, but man. No, no, it's not. You see, the thing is that I think that there's a combination of American exceptionalism um, and fear and a lack of strategy. So uh, the fear is what we talked about earlier. Um, uh, a combination of, you know, the response to COVID and, and the... And the uh, the issue of violence. And when I've done other interviews, what I've said, and I'm speaking as a 66-year-old guy, is that 
There's certain things I'm not going to do now because I can't run in the way that I once was able to. I was a damn good sprinter. And there was, there were, you know, there, I didn't fear going to demonstrations because fundamentally, because I knew I could run like hell, right? If you can't, then you don't go, right? And there's other things that you can do, but don't say to everybody, because of the danger, everyone's got to sit home. I appreciate the issue of COVID, but people were facing COVID in June and July. Yep. They wore masks, right? Yep. So there's that, but there's this American exceptionalism and maybe I'm overstating this. I, I think that believe it or not, there is a large section, there exists a large section of progressives and leftists that really don't think that things can get that bad. Can get bad, but not that bad. And that somehow things will kind of reform. I had a discussion with someone, I can't name the person, uh, but a prominent leftist who um, made a statement to me. This was uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about what was going on with the right and with, with Trump. And, and he made the statement that, well, Bill, but you gotta look at, at how resilient the institutions of the Republic seem to have been in terms of frustrating Trump. And Unfortunately, I wasn't in a position, I was in, a, in an interview. I wasn't in a position to derail the interview and say, are you nuts, right? Um, but that's really what I wanted to say. It's like, are you nuts? Um, I, I mean, one of the things about what's happened since the election is that Trump has engaged in a lot of miscalculations. A smarter person, someone shrewder could have played this in a very different way and we would be in a completely different moment. Um, but I think that what this guy was actually exhibiting was a peculiar form of American exceptionalism and believing that the system could somehow, like a boat in a storm, right itself. And, um, and, and this is wrong. Uh, you know, in, as you know, in the 1930s, there was a coup attempt or plot to overthrow FDR. And uh, your listeners may or may not know this, this group called the Liberty League attempted to enlist a Marine general, retired general, Smedley Butler, to lead uh, a US version of the March on Rome uh, that uh, Mussolini led in order to take over. And so it was gonna be a veterans march to take over. When this, was, this plot was uncovered and, and essentially demolished, What's interesting was that there was a failure of the, of the state to prosecute these people and put them under the jail. And further, there were efforts to discredit Butler and to make it look like Butler had been somehow some sort of semi-lunatic. And I think that that failure to deal with that as well as the failure to deal with a, what a JFK, John, uh, President Kennedy, was apparently feeling in 62 and 63 prior to his murder about the possibility of a military coup, which is one of the reasons uh, it's been reported that he was uh, very supportive of the production of the movie Seven Days in May. Um, 
the way that people live in denial about those, I think has led some segments of the progressive and left movement to basically feel like things can get bad, people may get killed, but it's not going to get that bad. And I think that's delusional. You and everyone else I know who's been to, I had a good conversation last night with a mutual friend of Sergio and I's, you probably know him as well, Christian Parenti, and we had an excellent oh, yeah. conversation last night, um, not for the program, we're just BSing offline, and, and he 100% agrees, and I think one of the reasons he has the perspective he has is because he's been to over 23 failed states in this world, and for people who have been to failed states and see what thing, how quickly things can turn, Um, Mm -hmm. Sergio, whose family comes from the former Soviet Union, uh, grew up, uh, you know, in, in, in what is now Ukraine and family from Crimea. Uh, you know, you talk with his parents and it wasn't like in 1986, everybody knew it was game over in five years. People think that today, but you know, when you talk to these folks, they're like, you know, we thought it was going to in perpetuity. Um, the other thing I'll say, and it's sort of a racist trope that I think we, we see in the United States, is we, we saw it coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. We came back from, when I got to Iraq, I was blown away by the architecture. I was blown away by even the modern architecture. So now I'm talking hospitals, schools, airports, mm-hmm. roads. Some of the highways in Iraq were nicer than the highways we have in northwest Indiana. And I remember sitting there some days going, now, no, this wasn't some perfect place, no place is. But for Christ's sakes, like it went from a function, different context, totally different. So I don't want to draw too many parallels, but it just, it was like just a little seed of the idea of like how quickly things can spiral out of control with a certain level of violence and that you can go from, you know, people thinking, Hey man, we'll go to the store for as long as we want to. Now you're in a violent context that can, you know, rapidly spin out of control. And I think this is true for people who have dealt with gang violence you know, we see it in the neighborhoods. One guy kills another guy. Now the next weekend, it's 15 people at a house party. And the weekend after that, it's 23 people at the next house party. And this keeps right. going and going. And I don't know, man. To be honest with you, Bill, I think there's a lot of folks on our side who just don't have a real tight grip on reality. And like like what the um, the consequences of real violence are, what the consequences of, de- of instability are, uh, destabilizing political forces um, it, it's, it's frightening to me right now. Um, it, it, it actually, it, mm-hmm. it worries me that so many of our friends seem lost in the sauce at a moment like this, where, you know, for me, it was like Wednesday, boom, got off the phone with you. We immediately got to work. It was like, we're but like, let's roll, man. We got shit to do. It's not time to navel gaze right now, in my opinion. Like it's time to, you know, That's right. to get down and let's do it. We know who the enemy is and now let's do our best to you know, demobilize them uh, and to mobilize and organize our people. So I, I don't mean to sound so down today, but man, Bill, I've been really shocked over these last nine days, including mutual friends that we have, uh, people that I know who have worked with that, I mean, I've been pretty much screaming at them on the phone over the last week going, are you getting crazy? Get off the couch, get in the street. Like, come talk to people, man. Some of these cats, right. Bill, they must live in a bubble because you know who you sound like? You sound like every ordinary person I've talked to for the last nine days. Every other bullshit I've read on the left. Now, there's been some good analysis, but a lot of the stuff coming out, that's like operating in a universe that's not... It, Agreed. It's just not yeah. the same world, man. And that's mm-hmm. worrisome to me. Like, when I can only find a handful of people who got a voice on the left, you know, you have a, a voice that people respect, and, man, we, I, 
I'll tell you what, man, we've, we've got to have some serious conversations within our movements and organizations. What the hell we're doing and, and, and how we're going to approach this. So actually, believe it or not, you don't sound down. You sound really pissed off. And I make that, dis- that the distinction is really important. Um, this guy I was dealing with yesterday that I mentioned earlier, um, he sounded down. He was like, oh my God, the country is divided. It's so divided. I don't know what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. I put that in a different category. I would rather that that guy just go in a room somewhere and watch TV, right? And just like, don't bother the rest of us, you know, work out whichever your issues are. Because right now, it's right to be angry. It's right to be angry about the situation that we're in. So we have um, very concrete things that regular people can do. Um, So we've got to be thinking about the pressure on government, the Biden folks, state and local government. Uh, prosecute these fascists, put them under the jail. Uh, We've got to engage in preparation of various forms of self-defense. Now, I'm not talking about building up a people's army, right? I'm being very realistic. All kinds of self-defense. And some of it is just sort of common sense things to watch out for. And and then um, other mechanisms of self-defense that I'm not going to go into. we need to be doing what we talked about in the very beginning, mobilizations. Um, and we need to be having people out there in masses so that it's clear that there is an anti-fascist mandate, yep. right? That, uh, and, and not just the opinion of Vincent Bill, yep. but masses of people. And so they have to be you know, protected uh, one of the things that we can learn from the civil rights movement about protection was the deacons for defense. Um, and there's other forms of protection that people can use and discipline. So one of the things that that means is that this whole idea of diversity of tactics, whoosh, gone, yep. forget it, right? It's like, we are going to be disciplined. And if you act up, we're going to kick your ass, right? Because there's going to be discipline. We're not going to allow room for provocateurs or idiots to come in and and mess things up, particularly in this kind of moment. Um, I mentioned before about echo chambers. So one of the things that I think would be very important for you and other people that had programs such as yours is to start linking together and um, sponsor uh, webinars, Um, linking uh, show themes, sharing guests, so that that people can start hearing the messages that are necessary right now in order to move forward. The right wing is far better at this than we are. And then, you know, look, man, some of our friends, I just leave them alone. You know, it's like, it's a waste of time to really lean on them because one of the things I learned a long time ago, I was in an organization that was splintering back in the early eighties. And um, I was like running around talking to people, trying to convince them to stay in the organization only to discover that most of the people were lying to me 
about what their real reason for leaving was. And they were manufacturing differences where those differences didn't exist. To a great extent, what was going on was that many of them had just decided to move on with their lives. Some of the people you're talking to might just simply be scared to death. They may have no idea what to do. They may not be able to say to you, in part because of the way that they have seen themselves, right? They may have not been able to say to you, hey man, I have no idea what to do. What the hell should we do? And it's not like I'm trying to come off as like, you know, Mao Zedong or, or Sun Tzu or something, the strategy. But I'm saying that in the midst of a crisis, you identify immediately what are some of the things that people can do. And you move from there. And one other thing that becomes very important right now is for people to become much clearer theoretically about the nature of our opponent. So I've been really pushing people, for example, to read material out of the Political Research Associates, uh, which is this group that has studied the right wing for years, um, based up in Massachusetts. Great material, right? Uh, the book by Nikos Poulansas, Fascism and Dictatorship, which I swear by, right? An excellent analysis of what happened in Italy and Germany and a very complex way of understanding fascism as not just the equivalent of using the word, the term MF, but really understanding as a social movement and what it is and what it's not, what, how it's different from a military coup and stuff like that, that we have to become clearer about what we're up against. You know, the other day I was doing an interview and I talked about anarcho-fascists and this caller got very upset with me. I think that they were an anarchist, right? And, and they seemed to think that what I meant was that the fascists were confused and, and, and disorganized. And I said, no, I'm using that term very explicitly. That when you look at Mussolini and Hitler, one of the things that they did is that they consolidated a fascist movement into a political party. Mussolini essentially crushed his opponents and forced everybody into the fascist party. Hitler basically did the same thing and certainly with the Knight of the Long Knives made sure no one was there that we have now in, uh, in, the, in, in a number of countries, including the United States, people I would describe as anarcho-fascists. They are groups that have an apocalyptic view of strategy. They, they are not necessarily thinking about taking power in the way that Hitler and Mussolini was. They're thinking about a setting off a conflagration right, that will lead to, it's almost, what's the word, millenarianism, the end of the world type stuff. You know, it will lead to the fascists being swept into power. Some leftists have that same kind of view. And that's what I mean by anarcho-fascists, that they have these networks. Many of them are online. Um, they are decentralized. And they also are not unified ideologically, which is very hard for many of us on the left to appreciate. Um, I don't know whether you ever saw that movie, uh, I think it was Costa Gavras did a betrayal uh, with Deborah Winger uh, and Tom Berenger. Really interesting. She's like an FBI agent. This is in the 1980s. And she infiltrates this fascist group in the Midwest. 
And there's a moment when Berenger, who is this fascist, but not a Nazi, um, goes to a gathering of fascists. And this one guy shows up in a Nazi uniform. And Berenger later says something like, what the hell is this? My father fought people like that, right? And it was very, it was in that one scene showing the differences within these fascists that become very, very important for us to understand at the level of strategy and tactics. So that's the other thing that I think that's really important for us to encourage people, right? That, you know, know your enemy and know yourself. You can fight a hundred battles without fear of defeat, as Sun Tzu said. And part of understanding our enemy is really grasping who these demons are. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we'll speak to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.